Hello, I'm John Waters, and I'm supposed to announce there is no smoking in this theater, which I think is one of the most ridiculous things I've ever heard of in my life. How can anyone sit through a length of a film, and especially a European film, and not have a cigarette? But don't you wish you had one right now? Mm, 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 mm. And I'm telling you, smoke anyway. It gives ushers jobs. And if people didn't smoke, there would be no employment for the youth of today. So once again, no smoking in this theater. So funny. Best bit. Cooper. Such a good bit. bit. Chris, Chris Cooper. Cooper. Anderson Cooper. Oh. Uh-huh. <laughs> Flooper. Remember Flooper? Maybe we should just, can we just start up the episode with that sound, Jason, a for three, me real a quick? Two, a one. Oh. Thank you so much for listening to Trilog, which is literal, where we talk about movies we saw or people we met at or through the Trilog Cinema in Minneapolis, Minnesota. You can find us on Twitter at Trilog Podcast. You can find the Trilog at Trilog Cinema and at Trilog.org. My name is Jason Daphnis. What is going to happen is that I'm going to talk for a little while, not for that long, and you can find me on Twitter at Nintendoofus. You think it's easy looking this good? I'm Cody Narvison, and you can find me on Twitter at Cody underscore VH. Fuck you and your wife. I'm Harry Mackin, and you can find me on Twitter at Shiitake Harry. I'm Aaron. I'm going to take that personally, Harry. Um, <laughs> for the record, folks, I would, if there's any debate, I would kill baby Hitler. Uh, you can find me on Twitter. At uh, Harvey, and joining us today, again, is the super duper uh, looper himself from many previous episodes of Try Love. Check them all out in the show notes. Seth Zarati is back with us. Hey, everyone. Uh, I just wanted you to say I did good. That's all that I wanted. And you can find me at SM Zarati. Very good. Very good. Uh, this, I think, is one of the final movies, if not the final movie, playing in the Into the 21st Century Dystopia series of the Trilon. Uh, you've probably missed most of your chances to see movies there, but if you haven't, go back and check out, I don't know, tickets at trilon.org. There are a number of great series coming up. Check out those two. The programming calendars just got released right after a secret screening of the Trilon. Uh, go to trilon.org and pick a movie you want to see. Um, but for today's episode, 212, everybody. Uh, episode 212 about a movie from, uh, I, I don't know how much to reveal. I, I made up the bit of getting angry at people when they say the name of the movie, so I'm not going to do that. 212 on an episode, uh, excuse me, on a movie from the year 2012. Um, Aaron, give us that uh, patented Aaron. Jesus Christ. Yeah, yeah that, was, that was a real <laughs> moment for me. But Aaron, it's time for you to talk. Uh, yeah, we're, t- we're talking about Looper, folks. 2012 film directed by Ryan Johnson. Uh, stars Joseph Gordon-Levitt as Joe, uh, an assassin who works for a crime syndicate in the future who sends their targets back in time uh, for Joe to kill and dispose of. Uh, eventually, uh, these kind of assassins, known as Loopers uh, in the universe of the movie, are given their final target uh, themselves from 30 years in the future sent back to kill to kind of clear up any sort of loose ends. Uh, Joe's life has changed when uh, him from the future, played by Bruce Willis, uh, is sent back. Uh, Joe hesitates to kill his future self, allowing uh, him to escape. The future self, that is. Uh, The future self is attempting to find and kill a now child uh, called the Rainmaker. Uh, Actually, a young kid named Sid, played by Pierce Gagnon, uh, who lives with his mother, Sarah, played by Emily Blunt. Uh, before the kid uh, grows up and ruined ruins uh, future Joe's life. It's all very complicated. I assume you've seen the movie. Um, present day Joe must find and kill future Joe uh, before this happens. Uh, the film was successful on release. It uh, grossed over $170 million on a $30 million budget, which is pretty impressive, I think. Uh, it was also a critical uh, success, too, and paved the way for 
Johnson to direct a Star Wars movie, which probably a pretty good uh, yeah, career move. Yeah, not a bad ROI uh, on that as one. As far as all things, all things considered, not bad. Um, that's what I got about Looper. Uh, Seth, did you see this? Was it? I assume we all saw this in theaters. We were all big Looper heads back in the day. Uh, Seth, what's your thoughts on Looper? Oh, yeah. I mean, like, this... Uh was an instant watch for me because I was a huge Joseph Gordon-Levitt fan in high school. And the thought of like him showing up there and then in uh, Inception, uh, I was like, this is, this is where we get to peak JGL. Like, this is what I've always wanted. Uh, and so him reuniting with Ryan Johnson after, you know, Brick, uh, I was like, I'm in. And then, uh, me and Jason also just geeked out about all of the sci-fi world building that happened within that movie. So it was really fun to come back to this movie. Uh, we're now you asked the question, Aaron, because you were also a big looper. Were you asking that? Were you asking that uh, ironically? Um, I, well, kind of, I don't know both. I mean, I, I I will say that I found this film kind of the weirdest one to go back to in the series and like a very weird way. And that I I feel like this movie one kind of uh, helped establish, you know, at least on kind of a larger scale, the, the career of Ryan Johnson, who is, is one of, I don't know, three, four names in blockbuster filmmaking kind of, you know, making these kind of genre flicks and given the ability to do so with a consistent budget, um, last film kind of notwithstanding kind of still in theaters, right? Not through some sort of streaming model glass onion kind of changed that. Right. But also he's also one who has been successful at doing that. And that there are a lot of looper like movies that came out that kind of didn't make their budget back. Didn't do really well. This was like a big success. I think it was, you know, um, kind of a throwback to an era of like science fiction films uh, in a, in a weird way that, that it was kind of playing to, but also had this kind of these smarter elements to it. Um, I don't know. Looper is like a weird movie to talk about. Uh, I don't, where do you, where do you, st- I, I don't know why, but it seems like it was like a, a, a moment in time where Looper came out and everybody thought it was like the coolest well, movie ever, especially everybody who I, yeah, went to college I was, with. I was definitely caught up in um, that. I mean, I, Seth was too. We even named our first blog after one of the, like the blunderbuss that this, that is featured in this movie, just cause it looks so fucking cool. It looks like a paper towel tube that they painted with Griebling, you know, like a star Wars yeah. ship. It just looks like the coolest shit. It's like that cool minimalism thing. This was, I think my first movie I saw from Ryan Johnson and I was just sort of really bold over i was 19 at the time so i was much more uncritically accepting of what a lot of what i was watching as long as i was as long as it was cool uh and i this movie still like it's good to go back and realize like yeah it still has a lot of that it's still cool to me and also i feel like like harry was uh, explaining last night like it just has that certain the ryan johnson touch of that uh not that like he's super established or anything like that he's got what eight ten movies that he's ever directed uh and you know maybe depending on your opinion of his recent career maybe you hope that he's got more in him but uh point being that like it ha- it seems to be like even even now 10 years after i first saw this 10 11 years after i first saw it it is good to see that it's got like his whole now in retrospect maybe a little ham-fisted like uh or like really heavy-handed style of like sort of postmodern, uh more philosophical leaning type stuff mixing with an action thing that this was like the hinge point for his career between i guess it was brothers bloom was just before this a couple of years 
before that was brick uh and i'm just looking at his yeah. filmography now um yeah some short films brick he did brothers yeah. bloom i had no idea that it's, that was him that's movie. wild and then uh looper and then star wars so good like movie. a really great kickstart to his like mainstream triple a you know big budget shit right i i just like that it still holds on to what uh makes it cool and sort of minimal it has some in retrospect upon watching it again for the first time in the last six or seven years probably it's it has a little bit more of the like we just got done talking about mad max for your road which is just like a fucking textbook case of incredible world building and this movie seems to be like a slight backpedal from that it explains a little bit more it takes a little bit more time but building its world feels important in the second and third acts to like make some of that connect and hit home later on but uh i'm still like it still had it's still a great time of the movies it's still a lot of fun to watch i was really glad to see it at the trial on 35 millimeter the movie that, that i don't know i don't know who the hell keeps that fucking film reel around from a movie from 2012 but uh yeah just a real pleasant time and uh and he still looks really fucking weird in that one shot of Bruce Willis, where he's supposed to be like a midway point, like probably late thirties, Joseph Gordon-Levitt slash late thirties, Bruce Willis. Like it, it really does not. Right. That's that's what he, looks, he looks, Oh, that's one of my favorite shots he in looks, all of cinema. Are you dead. kidding me? He looks that's dead like and dying. It's so good. It's incredible because like the studio was like, Oh, we need a big movie star. Uh, and they were like, well, Bruce Willis is a big action star. And they were like, well, wait a minute. He doesn't look anything like Joseph Gordon-Levitt. Those are very clearly two very different looking human beings. And they were like, Ryan John, it was like don't even worry about that dude i have this wig i have this series of wigs uh and you know it's just fucking pure movie magic um yeah i don't know maybe i'll sort of um wait am i super loud i should it, take a break i don't know if it's just I'm your game a. but yeah it's it's pretty high up i'll there. turn down my game how's this is this better that's immediately better yeah okay, that is cool. perfect okay wait, take my timestamp. Um, continue all right. Uh, I think that I sort of agree with what everybody's been saying. I kind of want to like further um, try to uh, articulate what Aaron was saying about why this movie is sort of weird to return to. Um, I was not a huge fan of this movie. I didn't see it on release. Um, or I, I should say when I finally saw it, I was. I, I skipped it in theaters. I saw it years later, I think, on TV. And um, maybe just because of the marketing or something, I sort of thought it was going to be really silly. And then I remember watching it with my sister um, and we were like very compelled by it and ended up liking it a whole lot. Um, I have not seen it since then. Um, it was very fun to return to. I liked it even more, I think, this time than I did the first time. Um, the thing about this movie is that I think it's a very silly movie um, and a little bit uh of a dumb movie in some ways in some ways it's very but beyond all of that it is mostly and my favorite thing about it is that it feels so much like a relatively young filmmaker who is wearing his inspirations on his sleeve um an extreme weeb an extreme nerd an extreme fan of all of the same shit that i was an extreme fan of in high school and college and he's just i mean like Ryan Johnson must have watched a Cowboy Bebop episode every single night before he started, oh, wa- like, before he walked on set to, like, yeah, absolutely. No, it's the best, right? Like, all of that is. Like, retrofuturism, like, obviously he was reading Philip K. Dick. Um, just like, it, it's just like, this is a guy who maybe wanted to make a sci-fi, uh, novel or maybe wanted to make a sci-fi comic book. Instead, he's a filmmaker. So he made a movie. Would it have been better as a comic book? Probably. Would it have been better as a novel? Maybe. Uh, but we got this movie and it's chock full of like 
700 different ideas, right? It's like just going really, really hard. It has too many ideas probably to sustain itself, but that does mean we get incredibly compelling scenes and that legitimately I think that like this movie is full of extremely compelling ideas from start to finish, right? Like we've got time travel, we've got telekinesis, we've got um, like the, we've got the future dystopia, right? We, we have the blunderbusses, we have like weird retrofuturism that's never fully explained except that it's fashionable. It's like, it's such a, um, <laughs> like, uh, I think you should leave a cosmic gumbo of ideas. And like, to me that I get so swept up in the enthusiasm of like a nerd, right? I keep thinking, like, I think I said after we saw this movie um, last night, it was like, if I was like, 25 and good at making movies and somebody gave me an unlimited budget this is exactly the kind of movie i would make right where it's just like i love akira i love ghost in the shell i love uh cowboy bebop i love philip k dick i'm going to make a movie that is all of those right like at once and i'm going to cast my best friend joseph gordon levitt in it and uh maybe it's weird that all of the women are like mother redeeming figures that have to save men from themselves and like maybe it has too many ideas to like actually make any of those ideas really work out. And like maybe telekinesis should have been saved for another movie when there wasn't so much going on. None of that matters because like I had so much fun watching this movie, right? Like I even think that like some of the worst elements or some of the most quote unquote objectively sort of like frustrating elements, like the fact that the entire first act is so over narrated that it barely functions as a movie, right? Like it was very clearly Ryan Johnson, like taking uh, like pages out of the novel he wrote and putting them in the screenplay instead um, kind of doesn't really work for me, but I still love it, right? Like I still love that. Like he wanted to make this movie because he had all of these ideas that were just like overwhelming him. And he threw them all in this like sci-fi. I think that like there's kind of a, I think it, it's sort of a, a great traditional sci-fi story in that sense, right? Where it's just like, this is a guy who just wanted to make something so badly that he threw it all at the wall, right? And like, I've, I fucking love it for that, right? Like, I just, I think that like the genuine enthusiasm um, and like, th like you had said, sort of like throwback enthusiasm almost, uh, Aaron, that's in this movie um, is so infectious and it's it's kind of weird and wild that it's Ryan Johnson of all people who has sort of come to epitomize kind of the opposite of Hollywood <laughs> to me right in this or maybe he's just sort of a weird avenue but like this is the kind of movie that even back in 2012 was disappearing right because it was like oh we're gonna give an auteur like a big budget to do a big weird sci-fi movie and then like clearly like there's a reason why it disappeared because a bunch of other people tried to make loopers and it didn't work um, and now Ryan Johnson is such a like known commodity, right? That like he's doing things like for Netflix and stuff. But um, it's so fun to like return to his early career and see stuff like this happening and understand like, oh, like I 100% would have given this guy a Star Wars, right? And I'm so glad we did. Um, so it's really tough not to love this movie, I guess is what I'm saying. Yeah, uh, I feel like I'm in a pretty similar boat, all things considered. And I like what everybody's putting down, even with me coming back to this movie and still feeling pretty positively about that. Like, I even sympathize with the, like, it, it feels weird in, in some respects, um, in part because, like, the, the thing that hit me, and I, I think everybody, most recently, Harry, um, sort of, like, gesturing at it, like, this is a big swing. It's an originally conceived work um and it's like it's 
very efficient. Uh, and that's not something that that's, I, I think, a microcosm of like all of the things that we wouldn't expect to see with this type of movie nowadays, but a, a movie where it's, it's creating its own world and then telling like it establishes the reality um, and then tells a story sort of within that world. It's just like, this is what we're working with and we're spending the latter half or so of the movie telling like a very specific, you know, intimate um, tale, you know, within that, uh, you know, you'd expect to see you, know, this comes in just a couple minutes under two hours, even from somebody like Ryan Johnson. And like, I mean, you know, knives out movie is what, like 130, 135 minutes, like him and like anybody else, you know, you'd expect more sort of, um, yeah, like the throwing, throwing things at the wall, um, for better and for worse, right? Like, I think th- there's, that's maybe its own separate conversation that maybe we get into or maybe not, but it makes me think of something that, um, one of the one of the Daniels is um, the one of the co-directors of Everything Everywhere All at Once at a director's roundtable. The um, remarking that um, you know, like I feel like I need to put, and I'm paraphrasing because I can't remember exactly, but I feel like I need to throw everything. I need to include everything as much as possible in my movie. All the sentiments, everything that like that is just like in my heart and in my brain. I need to put it out there because I don't know if I'm going to get the opportunity to make a movie again after this. This could be my last movie. And I'm not going to be able to, you know, th- throw things at the, I'm not, not going to have, you know, maybe as uh, much leeway to throw things at the wall anymore. So like from that respect, I'm, I'm very like, I'm, I'm sympathetic to that. And I'm glad that Ryan Johnson did. I think this movie is, is better for it, not just from his side, the technical side, but from all of the, like the, the cast of character, the ensemble in this movie is, um, is, is kind of unreal. And, you know, we, we get, the performances alongside the like the being ham fisted about certain things like that kind of taking shortcuts telling you what's up getting us under that two hours while while still um getting folks like like jgl like emily blunt like uh noah segan the guy who plays kid blue um which i might comment a little bit more on later just like really briefly because he is in all of ryan johnson's movies and he's a really cool presence um paul dano as well like having those folks who like lean into um, their respective characters alongside people like Bruce Willis and, um, Jeff Daniels, who don't really have to do that because they have a pretty established vibe at this point. Like, I thought all of that worked, um, really, really well. And yeah, I don't, and I think the, the sort of silliness that you were talking about, Harry, I think because of the, the, the bluntness, not just the Emily bluntness, but the narrative bluntness, um, and like the, oh. the actors, um, <laughs> exactly bingo um <laughs> Pauly d said it best um the, yep. the everybody um you know uh, uh leaning into overacting maybe is the term that i'm dancing around just like all of that makes this effectively silly and it needs to be a little bit silly in order to be its most effective properly uh, and i'm i'm very okay with that i yeah i like i like looper i liked coming back to it and i like that we're talking i like about looper it. and i like the ideas that everybody's brought up about like how much is just in this movie you don't really think about it first time uh because it sort of focuses in the second and third acts around three or four main characters well i guess three main characters you know fiction of the movie two different characters essentially uh but like it does I didn't think of it when I first saw it this way, but it, it like you, you elucidated it both really well about how it feels like, um, like it's almost, it's not the most experimental. It's not the most like, um, abstract or, or, or grating or friction, friction, whatever experience. It's not like the hardest thing to consume. It's still like a blockbuster. It still moves pretty quickly. It still has fun and action and blood and, you know, sex and everything. It, it but it is, 
Um, it feels a little bit like in as much shit as it has in it, it feels a little bit like a challenge from Ryan Johnson as writer and director of it. Like, Hey, here's everything. Here's literally everything that I wanted out of this movie. Do you want this? Is this something that Hollywood would reward with, with money and with budget and with a box office? Like, you know, that's basically him putting everything out there that he wanted to. And, you know, it did respond, I guess, new generation of moviegoers, new, like uh, breaking a, a long string of, uh, you know, pretty rote action movies at the four in the first, like, I guess, decade, half decade of the Marvel whole MCU thing really coming into its own. I guess people it must have just hit at the right time. But it is amazing that it does not feel, as Cody was saying, it's got a certain amount of efficiency to it. It's just under two hours, and it does feel like it it does not, uh, like, skimp on any of those things. It does, like, and the areas where it does skimp, the whole time travel rules being written out as, like, it's going to fry your brain. Don't bother thinking about it. Uh, It's the whole uh, idea of multiple timelines. Don't think about that. doesn't matter. It really does rely, for as many ideas as it has, it relies on traditional, conventional structure of a story to put all those things through the the ringer on it to like get as much as it can out of those various components without uh, short shrifting them without making you feel like we're not really paying attention enough to it like i never got caught up on the time travel thing even my even my first watch of it i just accepted that these are the characters this is the notion you know this is how the narrative is going to unfold until you know surprise near near surprise ending um i don't know where i'm, I'm going with that more or less just the idea that it is very strongly like it has a lot of near a lot of pull it has a lot of momentum despite having so many like dangling threads that could be caught in the wind on it yeah i think that um i really liked what well what both of you said but especially cody like i think that the central tension for me in this movie that makes it really compelling is that i think that it is kind of a throwing everything at the wall movie um but it's by a guy with some experience directing and i think that really shows up as well um like I'd like it ex post facto sort of like um, in retrospect, I think I could, I could cut like 20 minutes out of this movie. Um, personally, I didn't notice that at all while I was watching it. Um, despite the fact that like, I think that this movie is like kind of very competently, like five different movies. Do you know what I mean? Like, it's crazy to think about where you start in this movie versus where you end up. Right. Like, Oh, we lost Seth for a second. I'll take a timestamp. Seth, are you back? Can you hear me? Yes. Okay, sweet. Um, Like, I think Emily Blunt is, like, introduced halfway through this fucking movie or something, like, or at least it felt like it. And then, like, what what started as this, like, very wide scope, literally time-traveling, like, crime noir story becomes this, like, uh, Night of the Hunter-like one setting one sort of standoff for the rest of the movie, right? Like all of a sudden this kid is introduced and then the kid's a main character. His relationship with Joe becomes the main stakes. Meanwhile, all of these other plot threads that we opened up in the beginning are still culminating, right? And it's really fun to like, to like trace the characters through the movie, right? Like the, the gat man that like is sort of on the periphery of the story all along, but like continues to make a nuisance mm-hmm. of kid himself. Um, the, the sort of like, uh, Swiss watchness with which like the the parallel plots between old Joe and young Joe play out side by side like I still think that like I find that um when he goes to kill the second kid and then he has the memory of finding out who the rainmaker is and so he feels that he no longer has to kill the second kid like that to me was like really really compelling like script writing 
You know what I mean? It's like, it's so fun to like see how much energy is happening. And like that to me is a pretty good sort of, um, epigraph for the entire movie right which is just that like i think that there's plenty wrong here or plenty to maybe nitpick uh for instance i think i would have cut the romance angle with emily blunt entirely i find it so extraneous it is, and it is silly pretty um, quick onset that we're i mean just to get a little blue she I, like never brought she, like, up pretty again. much just gets horny one night and then calls him up yeah like yeah and she's thinking about masturbating and instead she calls joe like, up into her room get, and then they have sex and they never talk get about it, it queen again. but yeah it feels uh, out of nowhere yeah um but anyway, I didn't notice any of that because I think that the pacing in this movie is so compelling that I was riveted pretty much throughout, right? Like, And I think a big part of that is also because there are so many scenes that I wonder if Ryan Johnson like wrote before he had a concept for a movie just because he had so many good ideas. Like, I keep thinking about like when they find the young Paul Dano and then they like torture the guy to like make it harder for the old Paul Dano to run away, which like, it doesn't make any sense, but like, it's such a good idea. It's like such a great concept that like, I wonder if he was just like, that's that's the sort of scene that makes me think like oh that was the first idea that was his twilight zone episode it's like oh there's like there's like an old man who's running away but they have the younger version of him and they like cut off his leg to make it harder for him to run away it's like that's brilliant right like that's like a 30 second elevator pitch that that could have been a whole twilight zone episode exactly i feel like there's like six of those in this movie you know what i mean it's like oh yeah like there's this unstoppable akira character uh in the future who kills all of the mob and he's just a kid right now. And like, now it's a battle for the kid's soul, right? Like that's another great movie. Then there's like, Oh, like what about uh, Bruce Willis and his younger self are sort of like having this fight, but like Bruce Willis has the memories of his younger self. And so he keeps getting one up. It's like, there's like 16 killer elevator pitches in this movie that are all competing with one another. And I think it's like a testament to like Ryan Johnson, both being a big idea guy and like a pretty like, maybe ironically disciplined filmmaker that like this movie does all of them in sequence and it feels like one continuous thing, right? Like I think that like it works really well, despite the fact that it's like all of these things at once. And despite the fact that half an hour into the movie, it becomes a different movie. And then it does that like two more times. Right. I, I think I have to be the annoying contrarian no. who comes in here and says that I do not I I I ding, like ding. this movie, and I, I kind of uh, I, I kind of respect it in the manner that I think Harry was talking about earlier, in which you know a young filmmaker is given kind of the keys or the you know the budget to uh, kind of this larger blockbuster project, and is kind of throwing everything at the wall and and, and see seeing what sticks. Um, I, I kind of respect that, but like. I just don't like the second half. Like this movie does not feel to me like six things. It feels like I see what you're saying, but to me it is like so solidly like there is a first half of this movie and then there is a second half of this movie. And I do not like the second half of this movie and it's not necessarily for any sort of intelligent reason. I just don't like any of the shit on the farm. Do not like the kid. Do not like Emily Blunt's character. I just want the first half of this movie stretched. And it's like, there there are little aspects of that, that, uh, I kind of that I have issues like that with like a lot of stuff that Ryan Johnson does. And I'm trying not to like so many people are annoying about criticizing Ryan Johnson. I'm trying not to do that. But like specific to this film, I just like I find all of his good ideas in that first half. And I just want Joseph Gordon-Levitt tracking down Bruce Willis to be this movie. And 
it is so enticing when that is happening. And then it grinds to a halt for me the minute Joe gets to the farm. And I just don't like any of that stuff. It's maybe it's kind of dumb or like, uh, you know, but like just my visceral enjoyment of the film just kind of drops off a cliff. Unfortunately, I don't know. I don't think it's dumb at all. Uh, when I first watched this movie, like in theaters, I distinctly remember thinking like, oh, when this turns into, yeah, like Akira meets the witness in the second half, my attention just like came screeching to a halt. I wanted all of the cool future techno, like blunderbuss, eye dropping, like I wanted all that cool shit. I wanted, I wanted JGL and Bruce Willis remaking iRobot. Like I was like, give me all of that. Um, And it wasn't until I was rewatching it, I think this time. And yeah, I've been separated from this movie for a, a minimum of like seven or eight years. And I've done a lot of like a personal growth on my own side that I was like, okay, like, Oh no, I'm, I'm serious. Uh, I see Cody sort of laughing. Uh, no, I'm just, for, for uh, Hey, shots fired at Aaron who has undergone no growth. <laughs> I've done, I've done no growth. I've not, yeah. I've done a no growth. I'm, I've done a, whatever that. You know, no, is. I'm just yeah. kidding. I, I know what you mean. Please continue. I'm sorry. No, that's all right. I remember thinking like to myself, okay, this movie reminds me so much of teenage mutant Ninja turtles the 1990 Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, because there was all of this cool fight scenes and quipping and stuff. And then you go to the farm and there's like a slowdown and there's all this character development and relationship building. And when I was a kid, I was like, this is the most boring part of the movie. I wish they would just go back to fighting foot soldiers. I would, but that, I mean, Casey Jones, Max on April O'Neil. So that's cool. Um, But like, I was like, this sucks. And then as I grew, I was like, actually, no, we're exploring like the bond between brothers and their love of Splinter. And I don't want to turn this into a TMNT podcast, but like that was the same thing that happened when I was watching Looper. I was like, okay, this part is less exciting, but I will challenge myself to not call it boring and withdraw and like, like what, what are they telling me here? Uh, What is Ryan Johnson trying to say? And I, and I will confess i'll agree with you aaron that it is like two very different movies uh to the point that if you're talking about the themes and the character growth and everything that happens in the second half i don't even think you need the first half of the movie like this this could be two movies that stand alone uh that have like very different um sort of premises and motivations but i think it is the most interesting part that they are connected uh, through these, these characters and these timelines where like, sometimes it almost feels a little contrived, but sometimes I'm like, wow, this is the most elaborate setup to get to this very sort of simple premise. But you, Mr. Johnson, you came up with some really wicked, cool shit to get there. Like hats off. Seth, I see what you're saying. I, 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 as previously mentioned, do feel I don't know. I don't want to be like a bully towards Looper, which is like a, a well-made good movie. But like, I, th- I think I have, I, I find some of Johnson's, um, I don't know, inclinations, not even as a director, but maybe just as a writer, kind of annoying. And that he, he is very clearly someone that like 
like me, like Harry has mentioned previously, like clearly grew up with uh, like a lot of the same source material that he, he's drawing on here. He's very clearly like referencing a lot of that. And like, I, I like that, but I, I, he, the, the, there's a conversation uh, earlier in the film between uh, oh, who are the two characters, Joseph Gordon Levitt and uh, it's Abe, Jeff Daniels uh, as Abe. And, a, you know, Abe says to him, hey, why are you wearing the tie? And Joseph Gordon-Levitt is like, oh, it's fashion. And he's like, yeah, but you're just drawing on all these old kind of, you know, genre movies or whatever. Why don't you splice it up? Why don't you throw something new in there? And it, I, maybe I'm reading too much into this, but I, I kind of think that is Johnson's inclinations as far as like writing and creating genre films uh, in a weird way. And that he is very clearly appreciative and he respects uh the genre films that he is drawing from but he feels the need to kind of throw these wrenches into them uh like all the times like all of his films have these wrenches thrown in um and i kind of just want to kidnap him and like force him to make a straight genre flick because i think he is very good when he is in that mode um and i think when he deviates from it i think that's like the worst aspects of those movies um i don't know like you were were a big fan of glass onion weren't you I, I like Glass Onion, but Glass Onion does the same thing. The Knives Out films do the same thing and that they are very clearly, you know, referencing mostly Agatha Christie murder mysteries, but they are like flipped into like Knives Out is not actually a murder mystery until you learn that someone was actually murdered two thirds of the way through that movie. It, it, it is, you know, it is referencing the aesthetic and the tone and the genre trappings of murder mysteries, but it is it, the actual murder mystery itself is this kind of like mirror reversed image of what a murder mystery is where you are instead following this person who might be framed for murder, uh, as she tries to escape the law that kind of closes in on her. I find that stuff interesting, but like most people who do that kind of stuff, they do it on their third foray into the genre. They do it on their fourth. He does it every single time. Every single one of these movies has one of those elements. And I appreciate that they are like well-written. They're interesting, but like, just give me like one or two straight. You know what I mean? Like, don't, he switches it up. He goes from making a better Demolition Man to making a worse Terminator Two in this movie, and I, I, I kind of find it annoying. Ouch. Like I, you know, I, I don't, I don't like that aspect of the film. But like, I do like the movie. But like, it's like this nagging thing when I see his stuff, where it's like, is he going to make, you know, a, a Knives Out sequel that's going to be this slightly more direct uh, homage to the murder mystery genre? And it's like, no, he's going to switch it up again. And it's like, I don't know. Uh, it feels like whinging at a certain point, you know? Yeah. Well, I, it's interesting because I, I guess classically, like, this is me sort of agreeing with you, but also vehemently disagreeing uh, in that I find that the idea of, like, Ryan Johnson should go back to doing straight genre bullshit, I think is maybe the, the most boring possible thing <laughs> that you could ever want. Uh, that sounds There's nobody making genre stuff, though. To me. He's, he's uh, one of, he's one of like, he's one of two filmmakers who is given the ability to do this, and the other filmmaker given the ability to do this is making a movie about Oppenheimer. And th- those are the only two that have the funding, you know, it's... Like, yeah, I, and they I, make pretty boring movies, and you sa- it sounds to me like what you want is to make them more boring. But anyway, yeah. I agree with you in the sense that I think that like the second half of this movie is clearly weaker, and I think that can be said for some of uh, Ryan Johnson's stuff. And I I think that like um, 
to be honest, like, I think it's just because, like, I think when this movie tries to take on a thematic weight of its own, uh, Ryan Johnson's writing is not quite strong enough to see it through. Um, I don't find Joe to be that compelling a character, and I don't find his uh, journey that he goes on with his older self to be particularly um, coherent, to be honest. Maybe I'm missing something, um, but... I like I think that like Joe's older Joe's relationship with his wife and the fact that it sort of ironically makes him a worse villain than a moral younger Joe is interesting. But I think that like their relationship to one another and how that shifts, it like doesn't totally work for me in this movie. And I really like the ending from like an impact perspective. Um, but I just didn't like Joe's resolutions in this didn't totally ever really work for me. Um, and, uh, I also think that like it gets really caught up in the worst aspect of this movie to me, which is the gender politics and the sort of like weird Oedipal like mom stuff that keeps coming up where like they sort of like try to plant the seed that Joe has this weird relationship with his mother where he misses his mother and like a big part of who he is and what he's trying to redeem himself is with his mom. And then like, Emily Blunt's character kind of becomes, and it's like a mom off by the end of this movie where like older Joe is like trying to save his, his mom wife. And yeah, younger Joe is like trying to save his mom wife. And they're both sort of like, I don't know. I think that like, there's something really like kind of gross and Oedipal about the sort of like gender politics of the final conclusion that this movie comes to that makes this sort of like, I don't know, but but I'm I'm really interested in hearing what everybody thought about, I guess, um, the second half. And, and if it's sort of like if it fails on the merits that Aaron's talking about or if it fails on the merits that I'm talking about or if it succeeds on either of those merits, I guess. And I may be missing something, which I totally could be. No, I, I think that's fair. And, you know, to I, I guess y'all's point, um, just for the purposes of of moving things along, maybe recontextual, not recontextualizing, but just like coming at it differently. I, I think the, what everybody's saying about this movie being multiple, multiple different movies and the fact that the middle sort of act, I mean, it, it is crisscrossing threads all the time, but the fact that it is a, a, like, um, trying to, I'm trying to pull an auteur out of my ass and I can of just like what the, like the farms, you know, scenes of the movie are, are kind of like, but the fact that it is, um, it's, a uh, uh, kind of the what the tension rather kind of what we're trying to get past you know, joe arrives on the farm and in my mind at least for me even just revisiting it um yesterday it's it's joe needing to to win over sarah and and like there's i think viable tension in that like stuff that that really works before we actually get into you know i think the meat of what the emotional narrative of those sequences are and then it's joe not necessarily needing to win over um the kid sid because he's the um because sid played by pierce gagnon is um drawn to joe pretty well immediately it's just a matter of joe serving as some sort of of like bridge or mediator between the two and i think that is um yeah i i would never I wouldn't fault anybody for like saying or for coming to the conclusion that this part is like either, you know, significantly weaker or less interesting. I do think it is the, the weakest if for any other, for no other reason, because I think it showcases um, Ryan Johnson's 
weaknesses as like a, a screenwriter or a filmmaker of just the fact that the, the, I don't know, a lot of the dramatic conflict can just be reduced down to like these, these two people need to communicate and that gets threaded through to the end where, um, you know, it, it dawns on, on Sid that he is loved, that he has, um, a parental figure, uh, whether or not he sees her as a mother that was sort of like a muddled beat earlier in the movie, just like he has a mother who loves him. And one day, just at, at when, at, when the situation is at its most dire, it clicks that he is loved. And validly, that is like how these realizations do come about in the real world. There's not necessarily like a big culmination of, um, 80 different mini movies that come together and make things like abundantly clear, like it did in this movie. Um, so like, I don't know. In that sense, I'm maybe willing to give that specific part of this, as I am willing to give a lot of this movie, like a, a lot of partial credit for, or just like a lot of credit in general. But um, the, I, I think a lot of why maybe that doesn't land uh, with as much of a dull thud to me is because the, the, I don't know, I'm buying into a lot of what the previous acts are doing and laying that foundation and sort of intertwining things at the end of just, you know, even though this, you know, it's it's a time travel movie, but we get to the point where we're ta- telling a story about something entirely different, still looping in looping in motifs about um, causality and cycles. Uh, was I don't know. I appreciated that. I I like that um, pretty well. Um, agreed that the and I haven't to come back to your most recent point, Harry. While while I sort of um, I don't know uh, wrap things up. The the Oedipal motifs. Um, I also don't really have a great answer for that maybe that's worth exploring um the how the interplay between joe and sarah and Susie, um the character played by piper parabo not sure if i said her name correctly um splashes of um thematic flavor that i'm not i don't know i could i'm certainly open to being convinced that there's some big play that those have um that I don't know, strengthens the the finale. I'm not quite sure it's there. Um, it's something that I'm overlooking. Maybe I shouldn't though. Um, and, you know, like I said, we can certainly explore that, but yeah, that's where I'm at. Yeah. I think like Harry was saying, the gender politics pretty uh, awry, I think in this movie from the moment that you said it's Piper Parabo as Susie, the cold girl that he uh, decides to basically become way too attached, attached to in the end. Uh, I think that like other, in most cases, there's a lot of just totally serviceable character work. Obviously the most, like the, the meat of it is sort of given to, or uh, apparently given to Joe versus Joe in the beginning. And then later Sarah and Joe and Sid sort of become the, the most important parts of the plot. Um, and the whole Joe versus Joe thing is sort of midlined until the very end. Uh, otherwise I think totally serviceable. Um, the, like it is it kind of, I mean, I won't like, I'm not going to be the one to cancel a movie from 11 years ago, but like a little bit reprehensible that the character, one character, uh, the one, like the only other leading, like close to uh top line female character is of course, Susie, the call girl who is um, brought in to sort of like become the object of Joe's like misplaced desire and affection. And like his desperation after he realizes that loops are being closed all over. Uh, but like, again and it's one of those ryan johnsonism things where he's like ah but that might be called out as misogynistic if he like gives her too much help and credit so she says no i don't need your help let's stick keep this professional kind of thing and the same kind of thing happens with sarah i don't mean to just 
pivot totally to the gender politics because I'm not going to be the authoritative voice here, but it's the same sort of thing happens to Sarah where it's like she's proven to be capable. She's running her own farmhouse. She's raising her son alone, uh, but also she keeps tripping all over the place. And also she has these needs that are like very real, the you know desire for closeness and sex and whatever, but it's just a little bit like but those don't really service the character or narrative in the strongest of ways for her to be like for him, for Ryan Johnson to have like almost said, okay, here you go. She's not a helpless damsel. Is that good enough? Does that make her a good character? She's the only place in this movie where I feel like underserved by the, the narrative. Like she's one of the characters that feels less realized. I think by the end, just because the Joe versus Joe thing is sort of sidelined in the middle, um, at least as far as what's actually on screen, I feel like some of that is, it doesn't come to roost until the end, but when it does, it feels more complete because we spend so much time with Sarah and didn't see her in the first act for the first like 30, 45 minutes of this movie. It does not connect with me as much. Maybe there's something meta narrative that maybe that's intentional. Didn't ring as like the strength of writing to me in, a, in the way, excuse me, in the way that a lot of the other character moves and world building elements worked for me in this movie that just didn't. Um, yeah, <clears throat> I mean, I don't, I don't want to dogpile on it. And I, I think it, it is like sort of a best intentions gone awry, but like there is like a strain of like deep conservatism in the way that this movie treats both Joe and, uh, Emily Blunt's character, Sarah, where like, I really hate that Emily Blunt reveals that like, she used to be this sort of like party girl and like to the movies, like line of thinking, it's like the worst thing she possibly could have been. Right. It's like, she's like living this like purgatorial life to try to sort of like, uh, make up for the sins of her past, which seem to be like getting married out of our, having a child out of wedlock, giving that child up and then sort of like, uh, like continuing to be a party girl until later. And like, she has this like very like punished existence where she's kind of trying to do right by this kid. And she's kind of like, but, but also like, it seems to be her lot in life, according to this movie to like, it's now her like God given responsibility to like, make sure that the rainmaker doesn't go awry. And that is also the God given responsibility of all of the women in this movie, right? Like, like older Joe is quote unquote saved by his self-destructive masculine tendencies by his Asian wife who gets no lines <laughs> in this movie. Not a, not a single line as far as I remember. Uh, and there, there's also like this idea that like Joe knows that he is sort of fundamentally, um, unable of, are incapable of redemption except to erase himself because he sees his own bad path like rewritten in the rainmaker right like the final dialogue here is about how like joe sees a boy alone and scared right and he sees the anger that he felt in himself leading the rainmaker to become the rainmaker just as it led him to become the amoral assassin that he is and he can end this loop this cycle of violence by removing himself from it and therefore restoring this sort of like order the problem with it for me, I, I really like that, right? Like, I really like that, like, Joe does one selfless thing in his life, and it's to erase himself, to take himself out of the equation. Very sort of self-sacrificing Donnie Darko ending. Big fan. However, the fact that he's doing that to, like, give a mom to a son uh, is, like, frustrating to me because it's sort of like it sets up this whole thing that like oh like men need mothers they and like women's role is to be mothers there's like kind of an incisive critique of masculinity in this movie but like by accident right because like it never actually critiques that it says like actually like hmm. the way that joe is thinking about motherhood and the way that emily blunt's character is thinking about motherhood 
is right because hmm. actually she will be able to save the rainmaker for from himself and that is her role that is how she like exists and like none of that stuff all is kind of gross to me because it, it's sort of like I don't know. Like I did, I don't think that Emily Blunt deserves this existence. And I don't really think I would blame her for the rainmaker ending up the way that he is. Right. It's like, I, it's sort of like, there's a weird amount of sort of abdication of responsibility on the part of like the child himself. And like, I get that he's a child and like, it's supposed to be symbolic. That you're saying what if the child had bad vibes? I am. <laughs> that's kind of what that's you're, exactly you're what I'm saying. Of, yeah. I you, mean, you, you gotta kill baby Hitler, you know, you, you gotta kill I, baby well, I've, well, I mean that's that doesn't seem related in any meaningful narrative way. Uh, I, while I, I mean, I mean, I'm totally on the same page about like the underserving and the undue uh, like responsibility put on put on women to like to correct essentially the course of men. I think that like to and me, I don't to be to be clear. Sorry, I I don't mean that. I don't think that's what Ryan Johnson is saying. I think that he's using like scripting shortcuts and yes. it ends up creating these sort of symbolic ideas that I don't think the movie is really ready to reckon with. Right. It's it's not like that's not what the movie is telling you outright. I don't know if it is like coming to any hard and fast conclusions. And in that ambiguity and that ambivalence, I think yeah, there's room for that. Uh, for that to like creep for that insinuation to become like the text of the movie to me i'm i saw like in old joe's uh sort of like his uh inability to process grief and and the loss of the woman who yeah i don't think she has any lines the woman he meets in shanghai and, and who like fixes him essentially um i think that i see in that in his response to that and the fact that he would rather go back in time and kill it kill multiple children in order to prevent one bad thing from happening in his life I think that is like the indication or the uh, it, there's a different word that I'm not thinking of the indication that he's that that's like it's not the responsibility of the like it is him taking that uh, responsibility into his own hands that was uh, or rather assigning to her too much responsibility as like the key to fixing him. That is like the uh, what the movie is saying is like that's not a tenable that's not a fair thing to that's do to point. the women in, in his to the woman who, in his life like the one woman who has actually like been reciprocated the, the one person who's stuck around so to speak I'm not exactly sure how maybe through discussion we could get there how that would map directly to Sarah as like again another like important female figure in Joe's life they insinuate it once or twice with the memories that keep populating in old Joe's brain being sort of replaced by uh, Emily Blunt's face instead. I think that like it is saying instead it is the responsibility of men to not necessarily correct their own problems and just, Hey, fix yourself kind of thing. But it is like, it's a movie about uh, like male pain and role yeah. models and the, you know, uh, and the ending cycles of violence and abuse. Precis right? Precisely. And that's like, that's not a brain take or anything. That's just what, it, like what's on the face of it. But I think when we add in uh, flavors, like, you know, yeah, there were women in his life that like left him scarred. There were, there was this woman in his life who makes, who left, who made, made him feel loved. And that when he didn't have it, he didn't feel loved anymore. And it's like, that tells me that Joe maybe in himself, he killed himself because he's, he knows that he was never actually going to develop the self-reliance sort of the, um, the, the inherent like self-worth, the, the, like there was going to be no panacea to that pain of his that, uh, like he saw 30 years in the future, it was not going to be fixed. So he, ends it now rather than like wait around or try to make things better. Uh, you know, the way that it gets there with all the narrative plot devices and stuff it can, can obscure that a little bit to me. It was like shining through pretty, pretty brightly, if not like street, excuse me, uh, face value that it's not necessarily in my, in my view, uh, I'm sure that there are you know many critical ways of viewing it. Uh, 
not necessarily saying women are like the ones who should be, should be shouldering this because men are incapable of it and they need support of women, et cetera, or like, you know, any X party needs X party. It's more like the relationship of the self to him or excuse right. me, of and, Joe to his, um, to himself and, and whether or not he's going to be able to correct that. You could read the ending as Joe finally taking responsibility for his role. I think I the, do. In the I think cycle maybe that's, that creates, yeah. uh, that, that creates things like him and the Rainmaker. It's sort of him being like, oh, like he was a very sort of like, uh, he had an external locus of control, right? Where it was like, oh, I'm like, what time and circumstance made me? Um, and like, finally, he's like, actually, like, I can have a role in uh, ending these sort of like cycles, both in me and in myself. Mm -hmm. I don't have to keep on being the person I am and keep on perpetuating as a consequence, the creation of people like me, that sort of thing. I, have to, I yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm there with you. I, it maybe should have, could have had stronger writing to point toward that rather than, Hey, insinuations of how the character sees himself in 30 years and sort of flashbacks and flash forwards. I think that's part of the Ryan Johnson thing is like, I'm going to leave a little bit of up to a little bit of it up to the audience. I'm going to have my little twistness on it. That seems to irk Aaron so much about his writing and directing style is like, there it's is true. already so, there's already so much to riff and not to go back to this point but there's already so much to riff on Aaron that like if Ryan Johnson yeah. put out something straight I don't think it would be a Ryan Johnson thing it would just be kind of like yeah I'm throwing you some candy you know I I, that, that, I never got to wait on that so I just had to wait on it I now. also I, maybe yeah. this is this is a tangent but like I think that this sort of like mythological straight genre exercise doesn't actually exist uh, in a meaningful way I, I just don't know what that would actually look like I guess it, well it doesn't exist because the those like, I think the fault here is some sort of assumption that, like, more straight genre fiction does not have a depth to it, and that the only way to create a depth is by that's throwing actually those that's wrenches, an excellent point, which yeah. is the thing mm -hmm. I find annoying is like the genre fiction, even a lot of the old kind of pulpy shit always had depth there. I mean, we just yeah, talked about War of the Worlds, you know, um, a few weeks ago, uh, and I don't know, like, it's clear he loves that stuff though, so it's like, again, it's like. And it's clear that he's like, I don't know, he seems like a really nice guy. He's, you know, doing a creative stuff. He very clearly is like doing what he wants to do in the way that he wants to do it. And I don't know, it's like yeah. not offensive. No, like, I mean, that's, I that's interesting, though. Like, it's almost like, uh, and I apologize to Cody, I guess, but like, it's sort of a distinctly <laughs> video game thing where like, like video games, especially video games of like the 2010s, they like wanted to do genre but like they were also like weirdly contemptuous of or they had like a weird low yes. self-esteem about like what they were doing. And so they had to like be ironic about it or like try yeah. to like introduce some sort of like or like elevated horror. Right. Quote unquote is a yes. great example where like so many fans of like the new elevated horror, which I'm a fan of, like I like a lot of that stuff. But like there is this weird sort of like tension between or like fans of elevated horror end up being like um really weirdly ahistorically critical of quote unquote unelevated horror. Like they think yep. it was not worthwhile or anything when in fact it's like, that's kind of like what I'm getting from this, right? Um, is, or I mean, not, not from this specifically, yeah. but, but like your reading of Ryan Johnson reminds me of that where it's like, he loves all that stuff, but like he thinks in order for it to be quote unquote capital A art, he needs to like elevate it somehow or do something new with it. And it's like, what you're yeah. saying is that like, no, actually like, fucking like the 1980s sci-fi that he's riffing on here was great and like had like yeah. real yeah i think that's a really good point 
And I, I don't think he would say it's like bad. And I don't even necessarily think like I again, like so many people are so annoying when when criticizing Ryan Johnson that like I'm not like trying to like read into his psyche about it at all. I think maybe it's just what he like prefers doing and, and writing uh, stories about. So like good, good on him. Uh, but I, I think it's yeah, I think it's kind of I think I think it's worse for it, I guess, is what I was saying. Um, and I would I would like something a little more direct. But yeah, I don't, I mean, I, so yeah, I guess the, the, not to go back to like the Nolan comparison, but like Nolan is someone for better or worse who like does a lot of similar stuff to what Ryan Johnson does, where he makes a lot of kind of very direct genre films that have some sort of element that is maybe not the deepest thing ever, but is slightly more involved or more thought out than what you would get in like a, a typical uh, film in the genre. Um, and what I, I found with Nolan and some of his movies, I don't even like, like I don't like how interstellar does this, but that element that he kind of throws in there, I have found usually serves to kind of like deepen the connection to the genre that he's working in. Something like inception, having different levels of like dream travel allows him to basically create different set pieces that would exist in like a James Bond film, right? There's the snowy mountain castle. There's the, the kind of high tech uh, hotel that everybody's going through and so on and so on. I just find that like the things that Ryan Johnson does kind of takes me out of it rather, rather than like, allow me to go even deeper into that kind of stuff. And just like purely from my own, just like visceral enjoyment standpoint, I would like him to do that. Um, I guess also I'll say, I'll say this. People complain about the, the nose, Joseph Gordon-Levitt's nose looking like uh, uh, Bruce Willis. I think he, I think the facial structure stuff looks really good. He is just so obviously wearing so much makeup in this film it, did anybody? Yeah, does that work? It, like it's the, so weird. He's his is, eyebrows are so sharply defined, which kind of works with the character at the beginning of the film because right, he's out, fashion. he's partying. Yeah, but then he's in a field for like four days straight, and I'm like, why is it? He's looking. I mean, he's like caked up. You know what I mean? Like, what's? The, I, I feel like there maybe was. Disturbing. That's not what that means. <clears throat> there right. were there were a couple it's of also there were a, <laughs> there were a couple of things we probably could have uh, they probably could have tied up in terms of like the the costuming and, and set design later on. Um, to me, it's uh, his fucking eyes. He just looks like he's got crocodile eyes when he's young, Joe. I always then, wondered, is that like a is that a side effect of the drugs he's taking? Because that would really uh, work for boy. me, actually. Yeah. If like his wow. fucked up yeah. eyes were like because of the like uh, drops he was using. Okay, because yeah, I would actually do- really like that. I don't think that's ever made explicit. <laughs> yeah, they do. But young Joe is just sniffing the entire movie. You know, he's just, <laughs> I mean, he is. Yeah, though. Anyway. Like he explicitly is. Like he's a fucking yeah. junkie. Like everybody calls him a junkie, and he's they, constantly doing the cowboy bebop, like red mist or whatever. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, the red eye. They they do. I guess they do emphasize that during the scenes where he's like tripping, his eyes do go wild. But like, I think even in promotional materials, they like, he just like, they probably could have gotten, gotten context to make him look a little bit less crocodile. I don't know. That's just my very tiny nitpicky thing about this movie. Um, it's probably about time to start getting to the little nitty gritty nitpicky things. He does. So. He looks super weird in this movie. I kept waiting for somebody to be like, why do you look like that? <laughs> like Emily Blood to be like, dude, why do you look like a snake? Or, is, or there, is, is, there a, is there a single funnier, like give the man some credit. Is there a single funnier shot 
in the entirety of this decade from 2010 to 2020 or so than the shot of Bruce Willis turning his head and he has emo hair. There's nothing better. Dude, it's the number one shot I, of all that time. Is, that's Balding my, emo honest hair. Honest to God, one of my Amazing. favorite shots in cinema history is when they do the like, because they try to do a slow transition, but they run into the very clear problem that Joseph Gordon-Levitt looks nothing like Bruce Willis. You can't Willis. find a third guy as like yeah. 15 so years. You they, know what I mean? They really try and like they keep, yes. they give, they give Joseph Gordon-Levitt this like really actually badass looking like emo longer hair when he's doing like his Shanghai crime shit. But then, I, like, that's not bad. That's he just keeps a getting silly older. Man. And then, uh, well, he carries it off a, a little bit better. And then a finally, better, there is yeah. this one. There is this one final transition, and it's just Bruce Willis with like Joseph Gordon-Levitt emo hair. Uh, yes, it's so it says fucking fifteen funny, years, dude. and it's like that is not the person I just <laughs> saw in fifteen. Like I know how ages work. It's like I kept waiting like, for like like they they cut it a scene where he like he like goes to Shanghai and has like extensive facial reconstructive surgery. I know to yes. look like Bruce Willis. It's just like oh, that's why he looks like that. Okay. Well, it's also it's also like I know how movies work. You can just tell me that's the guy grown up. You don't need a you don't need to try and sell or it. Even it just kind of makes just it like worse a, that you're like trying a, to sell it this like much. Like a match cut. I don't know. It was a cool like the sequences around match that cut, are, are cool. Perfect match cut would have worked. I think super solidly because again, like the the makeup, the prosthetics do make the bone structure look approximately the same. Make the you know the, the sloping eyes sort of look around the same. It's not like it's not like a completely different person every single like the more sure. you see them together the more you recognize them together i will say charlie got this movie's ass really good where she was like that first scene when he appears uh in the in the field and uh joe's gotta kill him and they look at each other in the eyes and it's supposed to be clear that joe recognizes uh him charlie was always like how did she how did he know that that was him it doesn't they don't look anything like each other that's he's like that's bruce willis i'm not <laughs> yeah, killing like, bruce willis <laughs> that's jesus are you kidding bruce me willis. come on yeah. <laughs> They did if they did an Ocean's Twelve, uh, Julia Roberts thing. I would love that. that. Nice, that'd be very good. Yes. Um, Well, that is where I'll open. uh, I guess third to last. God, we have so many segments now. Um, I'd like to open up the junk drawer for any final thoughts because I know it's been uh, a bit of a big roundtable here. If anybody has anything left in their notes of any kinds uh, before we get to our new segment of this show, Um, I saw Cody's hand up first. Wow. Yeah. Really, Jesus. No, really, really quick. Um, I promised I was going to shout out Noah Segan again. I think he is. I'm not going to do a deep dive, but I'm pretty sure he has a credited role in every one of Ryan Johnson's movies, uh, including both Knives Out uh, movies. He played a detective in the first one alongside like the Keith Stanfield, and I forget what role he had in the second one. But I saw it on IMDb, and IMDb is gospel. So there you have it. Um one fun bit of trivia that, uh, speaking of IMDb being gospel, uh, I remember hearing about this when the movie came out, and I just think it's uh, great and hilarious and just top to bottom a great piece of trivia. Um, according to Ryan Johnson, Noah Segan took several classes to learn how to spin his gun around his finger because he has the gap that he's doing all these fanciful tricks with. Uh, and Johnson reportedly told Entertainment Weekly that uh, he filmed numerous takes of Segan spinning the four-pound gun, but ended up using the one where he nearly dropped it because Johnson thought it was funny. And uh, all good. the better for it. I, I think that is that is the move. It's a, um, it's a great character funny. moment. It's very yeah. funny. Yep, yep, perfect. So I wanted to call that out. Shoutouts to Kid Blue. Yeah, there's that point yeah. at which at which fucking Jeff Bridges calls him Kid Blue in the most contemptuous way. He just says, Kid Blue. It's kind of a fun name somebody must have given him, but then you realize, like, no, he gave himself that stupid-ass name. 
Uh, I'll say that I quite... Somebody brought up the blunderbuss earlier. I quite like the blunderbuss in this film. I like how chunky... I like it. I mean, it's literally Let's a blunderbuss, it. right? You know what? Uh, like, it's turn, just like... Turn down your volume for just, dwarf. for just oh, a second, sorry. because... <laughs> that, 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 that deserves it. <laughs> I, uh, I, it's, uh... I think somebody somebody kind of trashed the world building in this uh, compared to like Mad Max, and I think that's probably true because Mad Max is so good at that. But like, I think this is like so clearly like above the average like world building in a sci-fi, even like a smart sci-fi movie. I think like the blunderbuss, it like the reasons for them carrying around blunderbusses that does the reason does exist if you think about it for like a minute. Uh, it's like metaphorical for like the short natured uh uh you know lives that they live yes, and how yes, they're only yes, thinking yes, about the yes. present like that kind of little detail i'm like all right all right i will not and be did, too did, down on this did film. you notice how many paces it took to get from the like drop your blunderbuss here box to the window it took Just more than 15 to, paces didn't okay. it so that he wouldn't be i didn't think about that that's oh you know baby. what five star film i take back everything five stars Look, all you life. need is like four of those in a sci-fi movie if you have four yes. world building bits like that in the first 20 minutes people are like yeah, all right. This is a deceptively smart film. You know, and I mean, this, you and this movie like has it has like four or five or six, and it has oh. which. Uh, can you explain what that is? Because we haven't said it on. You've just been just. <laughs> you just been playing. I'm sorry, I've sort of skipped in line. But That's Cody in the my, background. My, my one of my junk drawer things is Paul Dano begging for his life, begging for Joe to take him in when the Gatmen are coming for him after he's let his loop run, and he's sitting there, and you hear this knock on the door. Must be a Gatman, and it's just. And then Dan responds with oh. <laughs> just this most Which, beguiled Please delete this from your – please do not save way, this like, drop after this episode. <laughs> I forgot that Paul Dano was in this movie and I cannot tell you how fucking delighted I was. Like when I – I was like, wait a minute. That, that kind of sounds like – because you don't see him at first. And then like you see him and he's got like a fucking like greaseball ponytail and he's shouting at a homeless guy. And I was like, let's, I'm giving this like a star and a half plus maybe I just like such an undervalued little freak is Paul Dano. I think like I forever overlooked. I think it's a weird thing to say that about him in 2023 when he had a very good 2022, but Hey, he wasn't nominated for the Fablemans. So I think I'm still okay with calling him undervalued. More like Uh, like, there will be blood. Yeah. That it was five years. So that's like a long amount of time, but like, these those two movies are all you need for little freak status to be cemented. Dude, and, and he had fucking Little Miss Sunshine before either of those. And like he's amazing in Little Miss Sunshine. Well, is he a he's freak? really is he a little he freak? Is. Oh yeah, he's a he's a nihilist teenager who won't speak because he's taken a vow of silence until he joins the Air Force. It doesn't get freaky, oh, that's a little man. Freak. Yeah, he yeah, yeah. fucking rocks. Uh, Paul Dano, come on the pod. Uh, I guess I have some. Uh, first of all, I should say I really love um, all of the world building. I even think that like this movie does dystopia really well. Um, that was something that that like really uh, caught up with me this time around. Maybe because we were watching it for the dystopia series, but like I think that like Joe being this weird dead ender assassin. Um, made a lot more sense to me this time because of like the bleakness of the world, right? Where it was just like, oh yeah, there's no future for anybody. <laughs> uh, ironically, <laughs> uh, except for him, I guess. So like, I really liked that, uh, this was just sort of like his, uh, like 
I don't know. I think the bleakness worked really well. Some nitpickingness. Mm-hmm. Uh, I was describing this movie to my dad this morning, or and Charlie was trying to help me describe it, and she was like, "Oh well, yeah, there are these loopers. Uh, they they're assassins that go back in time to kill people in the pasts so that they don't." Um, and I was like, "No, Charlie, I'm sorry. That sounds very cool. What actually yes. happens is." much much sillier which is that they capture people in the future but they can't kill people in the future because of how hard it is to dispose of bodies so they send them to the past where there's just a dude waiting who just blows them away as soon as they show up then he disposes of the body it's like that's such a i mean i love it don't don't get me wrong i love it so much it's so fucking silly it's like wait so you can disappear people and and send them through time travel just fine and that's a foolproof way to get rid of somebody but if you kill them that's when it's really sticky that's why we had to invent time travel is to like circumvent this idea and just i there are a lot of little ideas like this one that really bothered me this time around this will be my last point but like i i hate the establishment of emily's blunt's character where they're trying to make her like this tough badass and she like walks out to the cane with the shotgun and she's like i killed three vagrants uh, and she's doing an accent that she kind of doesn't do for the rest of the uh, movie, but she's like, yeah. and so like, you come on out, uh, otherwise I'm not afraid of you, and like, at, at a certain point, like, if if this is truly, like, it reminded me of like Last of Us, where like, these people are going so far out of their way to be bloodthirsty psychopaths, where it's like, so you're telling me that like, there is this mass migration of vagrants, to the point where like, People who have property are constantly being accosted and have to defend themselves with lethal force. Uh, and she is sitting out with this with this child who the the future of existence depends on her protection of. And she's decided to take him out to this farmhouse where her only defenses are one woman and one shotgun. And apparently she has to do this shit all the time where she's going out into the cane and being like, get, get, get out of here. It's like... At a certain point, it's like you're asking for trouble. Like, why would you not simply go somewhere that's more defensible or something? That, that for whatever reason, that's nitpicky, but that really bothered me. Of course, it turns out that she doesn't actually kill people. She uses rock salt and she was bluffing. So, like, maybe the movie's smarter than I'm giving it credit for, uh, it must be said. But that that was frustrating to me. She should have found a like a fort, like on a hill with a strong defensive capability, exactly, and That's simply just pecked people off uh, yeah. approaching the front gate. I see. Yes, I agree. Sure. We have a couple more segments to the show. Uh, one of which uh, is a recent installment. I hope people are enjoying it so far. It's called "Good God, Man, Give Me a Gif." I think I changed the name. "Good Grief, Give Me a Gif, Please." Uh, so I'm going to go around the table from the. Uh, uh, I won't start with any of my own. Uh, we'll go from Cody, sorry, Seth, special guest Seth, to Cody, to Harry, to Aaron. Any shots that you think you'd like to see as the gift that accompanies the episode link when we tweet this out on Tuesday? Um, Seth, are there any things that jump to mind that you could see as a gif being being real hot on Twitter? What's going to get us engagement, marketing man? No. <laughs> No, I got nothing. Like, honestly, all those shots I was thinking of are ones that are already used in promotional images or you guys were clowning. So like, uh, like the, the, honestly, the one I think of is like the hell, the close in on the eyes where they like tilt their head. Oh, it's great. It's, it's them recognizing each other. That's, that's a good one. Uh, valuable suggestion. Uh, Cody. 
I'm going to give, uh, I know this is cheating. I'm going to give one serious one and one, uh, sort of like jokey one, but, um, and it is like the main, one of the big images you think of, um, maybe not with the advertising of this movie, but after this movie is released, just the image of, um, Joe standing, waiting with his blunderbuss, waiting for, um, his, you know, the neck, I, I think literally his loop to come through, you know, for Bruce Willis to come through just the image of him waiting. And it's very like, um, how do I describe it? It's like a spectrum where he's on one end, the tarp is on the other. And there's that cloud. That's like a jagged little line in the sky. Oh yeah. Um, that's this, that's, I know there's not a lot of movement. Maybe you integrate some of like the cuts between like his face where the camera zooms out as I zoom out from the microphone. That's a, a mistake of podcast etiquette. The jokey one is when, um, Emily Blunt's character sees, uh, when Sarah sees Joe in the corn and Joe like slides back into the corn. Um, that it's, that got a laugh out of me. I wanted to bring, I, the only reason I brought that up, A, because it's funny, but B, because they both, utilize corn as um like a, a backdrop and i love that just as a v- kind of not too heavy visual um like accompaniment to how bruce willis describes the future of just how like things are cloudy there are like so many possibilities some are clearer than others and not being able to see everything through um the, the rows of corn was um i don't know something that that i really liked um, especially thinking about it in in retrospect so those, those are mine in the end, Bruce Willis loses the Rainmaker in the corn, in the cave. Mm. So uh, I, f- I feel like I have a bunch. But uh, my first one's cheating because I think Jason described this to me uh, years ago as a good joke. And I forgot about it until I saw it. And I think I turned to you. I don't know if you remember. But like, there's this moment when Bruce Willis is in the diner and he has to get out of the diner. And he shoots the window out. And then the camera just cuts to the outside of the diner. And like, yes. maybe the most obvious Bruce Bruce Willis ragdoll ever made is like clearly being just hoisted through this fucking window and like his back legs take out the other side of the window. So it's like, why did he shoot out the window in the first place? It's like a fucking hilarious shot. I mean, it looks great. It's not, I'm not clowning on it. I love the shot, but it is so fucking funny. And you I would don't love see, to see where that one. you don't see where he lands. You just no. see his body <laughs> flying and going out of frame. It is yes. top tier comedy. Like, so clearly like Mythbusters, somebody tossed Buster through a window, but they like dressed <laughs> him up to look like Bruce Willis first. It rocks so hard. Um, That would be a, a good one. I mean, I think an obvious one is the match cut to like, Bruce Willis with the emo hair. Um, the first kill, and maybe just all the kills, Cody kind of said this already, but like every time somebody gets shot with the blunderbuss, it looks so fucking awesome, dude. Like, because they always just get like big fucking holes in them. Um, I, I think my favorite is maybe when, uh, like Bruce Willis, Joe, like, uh, he like sneaks up on, or no, he, he's like, we're seeing him through the windshield of a car as he's shooting a guy who's seated in the car. And like, it's just this like unbelievably wet squelchy sound when the dude gets shot. And then we see the dude's head just like fall down out of frame because it like got blown off of his body. Uh, That's an amazing shot. Um, And then finally, uh, there's a moment in the movie where Bruce Willis dual wields (laughs) P90s. He's like literally like walking up the stairs, dual wielding P90s. Uh, it's fucking sick. Uh, lots of fucking sick ha- stuff happening in this movie. I wonder if that was like a contractual obligation that he fucking he like he had to be able to just go buck wild once in a while to do the it's die so hard thing. It's so fucking funny, dude. Because like, also he's he's leading or he's assaulting the gats, and like the entire idea of the gats is that there are these dudes who like use six shooters. 
Uh, they they even have like this entire like monologue, Baby Blue or whatever the fuck his name is, uh, where he's like, it's because it's like it's a gun for an adult. And the first thing Bruce Willis does, he breaks in there, he goes to their back room, and there are just all these machine guns sitting there. And then he just <laughs> takes them, and like it's no challenge at all. He just runs through these guys, and it's like you fucking morons! Like why didn't you just have the machine guns? But it rocks. It's great. He bruises his way through. Uh, Aaron, did you have any uh, any ideas for what you want to see? Is it um, I don't really have a serious one. As like a, a joke bit, what if we, what if we for all of our our gifts for every single episode, uh, I had a gift that spoiled the movie. You know, oh. this one, Joseph Gordon-Levitt shooting himself. Just every movie we do, we have the most pivotal scene as the, the gift, Kane, and we, we just. just it's just the the very yes. last scene with Rosebud burning, and it's the sled, and it's like, <laughs> oh, come on, guys! Every every single spoiler, we use gifts with subtitles if we have to, you know, <laughs> like just, and then we just never mention it, and we just do that for every single movie. That'd be a good bit. Let's not. That do is a that, funny thing to say and never do. Yes, I am never so do. against that. So many people yeah, be upset. Let's, funny. let's bury that here. Uh, let's bury that hatchet. Uh, one of my favorite shots is where it's right after the shot you're talking about, Harry, where he jumps out, where he's thrown out the window. And it's Kid Blue and Young Joe are chasing after, and they've got a bunch of Gatman in pursuit. And Joseph Gordon-Levitt fucking flings his gun to the ground, and it just sticks like a like a sword in the ground. It must have been just like a complete fluke because I don't think you could manufacture that. But it just like, and then the scene oh, goes dude, on so around them. And that's, sick. that's all I focus on is just like, is that gun gonna fall or did it just like fall like a snake? And then of course, like the funny realization that they're actually like you're chasing the same guy and I'm going to bugger after you now. And it's just really, really fucking good shot. But uh, one of those little, it must've been just provenance that that happened. Uh, well, great suggestions. All uh, the only one that I won't take is Aaron's, but uh, I like that idea. I'm not going to do that, but I like that idea. Uh, I mean, it is 11 years old. I wonder if we've passed the statute of limitations on like big spoilers for that. Um, anyway, we'll, you know, we'll take it back in, in review. The board will, uh, will consider, uh, but during that consideration, we have one final segment of the show, which uh, I need Harry and our guest Seth to help uh, us ring in. Yes, it is the segment that we like to call <gasps> Cody's, Cody's, Cody's Noties. Man, the three part, wow. the three part always hits. Man, what a harmony! Uh, harmony, harmony. Thank you for that harmony, gentlemen. It was frog-like and great. Today, we will be diving... There are frogs in this movie. Don't give me that look. I'm just off the beaten track. Remember the frogs? Shout out to the frogs. Today, we'll be diving into something called Time Love, which, funnily enough, is a segment name that was also utilized in our Time Bandits episode, which also featured Seth as a special guest. Uh, we're going back in time and recontextualizing, um, closing our own loops. It's uh, it's a metaphor. Therefore, uh, you know, all those stars are aligned, so I feel comfortable reclaiming and, and repurposing that branding for this particular discussion is kind of like, and listeners may remember when Larry Nance Jr. went back to play for the Cavaliers um, and his father's number was retired, but they unretired the number so that he oh, could wear yeah, it. And then he yeah. went to another team. So they retired it again. Um, they should have just made it the next number. He should have been like 14 instead of 13. That would have been pretty funny. I could improve on sports. Go on. Sorry, Cody. No, no, really funny. No, I agree. Uh, what I'll do is I'll present a series of prompts uh, related to some notable instances of cinematic time travel. Ooh, ah. After each statement, I'll ask y'all in reverse alphabetical by first name order to respond. So Seth, buckle the fuck up, big guy. Uh, you get a point for every correct answer or closest to the correct answer. And the person with the most points at the end will win. As always, trivia mafia rules do apply here. So use your noodles not your Googles. Uh, ready your JGL Bruce Willis makeup eyebrows, Jason. I My see joggles. you. Um, 
I don't know. I don't, I don't know how to respond to that. Um, <laughs> prepare your joggles. Let's go ahead and jump in. We'll start. And I'm not going to remark on the actual mechanics of time travel in each movie because otherwise we'll be here for, for eons. Uh, that is something you can use Google for. Um, if you're listening to this at home, if you're playing this, stay off Google, look them up afterward. But well, the reason I say that is Austin Powers, the spy who shagged me. That's a first. Uh, remember, that's a time travel movie. Uh, that movie features Mike Myers in a few different roles. How tall is Mike Myers, Seth? Five foot six. Five foot six is the guess. Uh, Jason, what do you think? Uh, I'm going to go five nine. God damn it. I should have gone higher. I should have gone higher. Five nine. Uh, five nine. Hopefully you're feeling fine. Harry, what do you think? Uh, tall King Mike Myers. I'm going to go six one. Yeah, let's fucking go. Six he he mocap Shrek, baby. That's right. <laughs> Tall and spear at the very least. Right, right. Uh, speaking of which, Aaron, what, what's your guess for this one? Um, do I go six one and try and give myself a bit of an edge there? Or go six two and give myself a bit of an edge there? I don't see Mike Myers being above six one. That seems yeah. crazy to me. Um, I'm going to go six feet. Six feet even. Alrighty. I've got, got those locked in going off a few sources on the internet. Mike Myers is reportedly five foot eight inches. Mike Myers. Yeah, baby. Uh, Five foot eight. Yep. So Jason uh, landed the closest. He gets the point and Hey, we're off to the races. Next, we're going to pivot to the film back to the future. Maybe you've heard of it. This movie features a Californian teenager and his eccentric scientist buddy portrayed by Michael J. Fox and Christopher Lloyd, respectively. Um, forget that they're just randomly friends in that movie. Uh, it's good fun, though. What is the age gap is my question. What is the age gap between Michael J. Fox and Christopher Lloyd in real life as Ooh, are of you gonna, today? We're canceling Christopher Lloyd, huh? <laughs> for, for, for Doc Brown. <laughs> for, for, for being his Depends buddy? On- hey, that's... How That's what we're here to find film. out. Yeah. <laughs> also, yes. Uh, also, yes. Also, yes. Uh, Seth, how far away in age are, are these two actors from each other, do you think? I am going to guess that they are 17 years apart. 17 years. And I didn't specify the unit of time. We are going by years for this. So thank you, Seth, for gravitating toward that one. Uh, instinctually, that's really great. Uh, Jason, in years, what do you think the age gap is between these two fellas? I'm going to say nine years. I think uh, I think it's a I think it's a short way from one man to another there. Okay, short, Next. A short distance. Uh, mono, uh, yeah, one, oh, one figure, nine years, uh, decimal places. There's only one... Nine, just one, as opposed to Seth, 17, that comprises two numerical slots. My brain is failing me. Uh, Harry, what do you think? Uh, I guess I'll split the difference and go 14. 14 years, says Harry. And finally, Aaron, where are you landing with this one? Uh, 18. 18. Years. I mean, he's, he's got gray hair in the film. That's not makeup or anything like that. I is think, it? He, yeah, I think no he'd be dead. A... I think he'd be dead if he were eighteen years old, like right now. Christopher Lloyd is still alive. He's still with us, right? He's, yeah, he's old. Yeah, yeah. That man, I mean, he's that, old that's as a ass, fucking but... old man. Yeah. yeah, but then again, Christopher Lloyd, famously uh, born in the same hospital as uh, as John Slattery, were just like they are born with like old person hair. That's just yeah. a, a 
symptom of the, of the thing. Um, <laughs> I thought you were going to say, born in the same hospital as Abraham Lincoln. <laughs> that's right. Uh, Christopher well, that's, is currently. <laughs> well, you're not waiting for the second part of this question. No, I just, I don't know about that. Maybe. Uh, who knows? Non-zero chance. Um, but enough about Abraham Lincoln. We're back. Uh, we're back with Michael J. Fox and Christopher Lloyd. Michael J. Fox was born uh, reportedly, allegedly, on June 9th, 1961. Christopher Lloyd was born October 22nd, 1938. For an age gap of 23 years, Christopher Lloyd is, what, 83 years, he's 83 years old. Uh, or 80, 82 years old? He's very old. Years old. He's an, old, he's very he's old. an elderly 84. man. I can't do, I can't do yeah. math. He's, what, 84 years old? Whatever. It's the heat of the moment. You do the math, listener. Um, but yeah, 23 years. Uh, so Aaron was closest with his guess. So Aaron's on the board, and Jason is also on the board. Still very much anybody's juego. Uh, did I, Seth, is that, did I nail that? Um, Spanish, Spanish for, I'm getting the thumbs up. Judges, we're in business, baby. Uh, a bilingual podcast. Uh, for question three, we're going to go ahead and move to Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventure, which has a, a listed runtime of crisp 90 minutes. Mm, you love to see it. Uh, however, there was an original cut of this movie. My question for you all, what was the length of the original edit of Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventure before additional cuts took place? It's a normal thing for, for all movies to go through. There's always an original cut, um, so this is not out of the ordinary. Don't be concerned. Um, however, uh, there is an all-universe where we just wrote that cut. How long would that cut be, Seth? 102 minutes. All right, 102 minutes. Locking that in. Uh, Jason, what do you think? Uh, I must, before I accept the award here, I must, I must, like, yes, this is off. Like, this is not about the narrative of the movie. This is not about it being a time travel movie. This is still a question about time. So I'll let, I'll let this one. I'll let this one slide. This one is about oh really oh really the the creator of this segment you will let this one slide. There's this funny thing that Zencaster you get a, you get a point on the board. Of this this Jason I've never heard of that. Uh, never heard of that bit before. Blinking I red button notice. that that lets me stop. Uh, I'm going to say that the original was was. Uh, uh, did you did you reveal that it is longer? That it is known to be longer. Or did you just say uh, it's that's not usually the case with these? Yeah, it's longer. Yeah. Okay, I'm going to say it was the case. It was originally 115 minutes. 115 minutes from the saucy super produce. Um, locking that in. Harry, what's your guess for the original cut? Call length? a friend just for like a baseline. How long is Santiago again, Aaron? How long was that film? Sa- Satan Tango. The what? Sure, that was sure. Satan Tango. was about, I mean, it's a little over seven. It's like 450. 450 minutes. minutes. Okay. So it's, it's probably not that much. It's probably shorter than that. Are you saying that 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 movie is probably shorter than that, or the the original? No, cut the, of Bill, the and Bill and Ted. Yeah, it's oh, probably shorter than that. Oh, okay. Uh, let me. So think. I wouldn't just for a baseline. Uh, I'm going to say 121 minutes. 121 I think there minutes. There was lots of stuff in there. Lots of weird sure. shit. Yeah. Can I? Yeah. Not 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 as long as San Diego, but but pretty close. Uh, Aaron, what were you saying? What. Can I get a summary of the guesses again so far? So, I, so the guesses up to this point, Seth, Seth guessed 102, Jason 115, Harry 121. Really, do I go 114 or ones? Uh, I'm going to go 114. We're gonna, I don't think it was 
close to approaching two hours. Yeah. Gotcha. Sorry um, to do we'll that to you, Jason. We'll find out momentarily. No, no, for sure. Uh, we got all the guesses in. Reportedly, the initial cut of the film Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventure went two hours, 25 minutes, 145 minutes. What? <laughs> what? The- Release yeah, the cut. Release the cut. Hit the Dano. Hit the Dano it. clip, please. Hit the oh. Dano clip. Thank oh. you. <laughs> Oh, that's that would be really they something. Got really, really, really into the history of Joan of Arc, and it took an incredibly bleak turn. <laughs> uh, and they they just thought, actually, totally, this doesn't really fit with the sort of uh, happiness of the rest of the film, so they had to cut it out. Yeah, the cut I don't know. Footage. If, it yeah. became uh, the messenger. Actually, <laughs> ah. that's what happened. I don't. I don't think it was in the original cut, but at least in the original version of the screenplay, it was more uh, more Hitler focused than it ended up being. Um, probably for the better. Um, um, hopefully not a hot take, um, but we're not going to dig into that more than we need to, which is not at all. For question four, we will touch on the film About Time, which is a, a stealth Margot Robbie picture. People forget, forget that's uh, one of her earliest uh, her earliest cinematic vehicles. Pretty straightforward question for y'all. Uh, between 2013's About Time and 2017's uh, I, Tanya, which... Marco Robbie was also in. Am I saying the right? Tanya, Tonya, Tonya Harding or Tanya Harding? Do we know? Is there consensus? Tanya I think, and, think yeah. it's Tanya. Yeah. Okay, cool. I'll roll with Tanya. Um, listeners need to know that I stress about the pronunciation pronunciation of names and words that I'm uncertain of, just so I can't get got uh, in in the forums. So that's just um, a little something for the fans. Between those two films, About Time and I Tanya, which film made more money at the box office? Uh, it's the classic patented box office question that we know and love. Um, we're going to be combining domestic and international totals. So just cumulatively overall, which film took in more at the, the inter, I guess, international all encompassing, all encompassing box office. Seth, what are you, what are you thinking? Wait, between I, Tanya and about time. Yeah, wh- yeah. Which took in more? Oh, I, Tanya. Right. I, Tanya. Uh, and I am asking Jason, what do you think? This feels like a trap. Uh, just to cover the spread, I'm going to go about time. I don't feel, feel like it could possibly be about time, but I'm going to say about time. Well, this, I don't know, this whole episode's been uh, about, about time, if you really think about it. Um, Harry, what's your guess? I had the same uh, inclination that Jason did, but he already covered the spread, so I'm going to go with Itania. Alrighty, I Tanya and Aaron. Are you going to balance the scales? Or are you going to no, go the no, other I'm going direction? Tanya, Tanya. All right, Tanya. I, I Tanya. Alrighty, so uh, I'll just lay it all out there. About time came away with approximately eighty-seven point one million dollars in the, the total box office. While I Tanya, for which Margot Robbie received her first Oscar nomination. Hey, shout outs to Margot Robbie. Come on the pod. Uh, took in about fifty-three point nine million dollars. So about time. I thought I, Tanya was like a massive, massive hit. I thought it was like you, $300 million. We forget million. that nobody gives a shit about uh, biopics. We got we to gotta come up True. with another rule yeah. where everybody else Elvis. guesses wrong and one person guesses right. They get like 16 points or something. Just like there's no I, I would actually way. be okay on a, on a true-false, the, the Cody's Nodies <laughs> addendum, on a true-false or a, a binary question, if, if one, one person, person gets it and three people biff it, <laughs> just like the jackpot noise, you know, like it's a pachinko machine starts standing. coming down. Yeah. Yes. Ooh, boy. <laughs> I would be a fan hey, of that. Not, not this thanks. time, though. Thanks, everybody. No, no, for sure. Yeah, I got that. No, I got that written down in my suggestion really notebook. It will be taken under consideration. That's a really clever question, saying, actually, because oh! I feel like 
I wouldn't have been surprised if About Time also made no money because I feel like rom coms at that point were also not like exactly huge bankable yeah. things. It was a Rachel McAdams vehicle though, so I mean, true. And a, a Domo Gleason vehicle. Uh, everybody comes Bill out nice. Yeah, vehicle. equal, equal star Gleason. power between Rachel <laughs> yeah. McAdams and Domo Gleason. Yeah. Yeah, certainly. Uh, one of them was in multiple Star Wars movies. I don't know. What, I don't know what we're talking Wasn't about. Bill here. Nighy. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah, it was. He played. Um, yeah, which the is, which is fucking, that star power. fucking wild. That always bothered me so much. How don't you get Brendan Gleeson to play Domino Gleeson's dad in a movie about fathers and sons? Like, what the fuck are we doing here, you guys? Uh, while we recharge heading into the fifth and final question, which, by the way, should be noted, again, still anybody's game. Uh, one thing that came up in my in my little research that has little to do with um, time and the nature of it and the way it plays out in this movie, but um, I felt compelled to share it. Uh, I think none of the failure of either of these two movies that I'm about to list it has anything to do with Margot Robbie, but uh, I did not realize just how poorly both of the films she was in in 2022 are doing from like a box office perspective babylon which i didn't particularly like has brought in about 30.3 million dollars worldwide up to this point in amsterdam which is extremely dumb and i'm starting to like it more and more for that very specific reason uh, is sitting at 31.2 million dollars which means about time grossed more than those two than Babylon and Amsterdam combined. I just Jesus, that's that's, you, that's really fun. I never it's thought been, I'd say it's this. It's been a landmark year for haters like me who like both of those filmmakers very little. Uh, that is, <laughs> that, I'm, I'm glad. I'm finally. I'm glad it's finally happening for you, Harry. Things are really falling into place uh, for a guy. Uh, I, I never <laughs> thought I'd say this. Margot Robbie, she needs like her Catherine Hepburn moment. Then, huh? She just needs like a real fucking banger hit to put her. I mean, here's like, the thing. Watered yeah, down when, screwball when comedy, Margot Robbie, sort women. of at the in the middle. We're talking about genre pictures. Uh, we did Let's just do uh, it. Yeah, I don't know, Mr. Ryan we were just Johnson. Talking, or I was just talking about how Ryan Johnson is not so good at like the human components of writing. But hey, I would watch it. Philadelphia story esque. That's what think. I'm looking for, baby. Okay, uh, last question. Which looking, I, yeah, I yeah. assume is going to be a multiple point opportunity. If you said it's still anybody's oh. game, well, you say that. Um, <laughs> And you'd be right. So for this fifth and final question, we will call upon 12 Monkeys, uh, which, hey, previous episode, and hey, previous Seth guest spot, and hey, Monkeys, what I'm going to do is And Bruce Willis. uh, Yeah, but the Monkeys, Harry, the The Monkeys, what I'm going to do is uh, consider the monkey. Uh, What I'm going to do is list off four different species of monkeys. uh, What I'm going to ask each of y'all to do is rank them in order of, uh, we'll say longest to shortest. And what I mean by that is we're taking into account the average height and tail length combined uh, of an adult, you know, an average adult version of each of these species. So that's what this I mean by like, longest. So this is head like to the toe culmination of the how tall is this actor question for Cody. Cody's going to speculate on the tallness of monkeys now. <laughs> bringing, it, bringing it back to like evolutionary basics. How you know tall I mean? is monkeys? Yeah. God damn. Yes. <laughs> Yeah, uh, evolution, which monkey. takes place over time. <gasps> Get it? Um, it yeah. So <gasps> guesses, maybe. <laughs> yeah. Um, so yeah. Well, I guess you're you're ranking them, so you don't have to give. We don't have to be concerned about the units of measurement. Um, so just you know the. Um, yeah, just keep that in mind. I will give the the names of the monkeys that you will be ordering. And so we've got the capuchin monkey, the howler monkey, the marmoset. And the spider monkey. 
So those are the four. I wanted to get those out of the way so you had time to deliberate. Um, so um, for listeners who maybe we're not allowed to Google images or anything, though, we cannot of, Google images. Of course, of them. fucking Nothing not. Like no, okay. I just absolutely make sure not. I don't know what any we of these all, look like. What the fuck? <laughs> we all, I'm just ensuring we're not. You know, I know. Okay. I know. Uh, while that's going on, you just noted uh, you'll get a point for each correctly slotted monkey. And again, there will be four different species in the mix, uh, as I just said. So if you get the order perfectly correct, you get four points. If two of the species are in the right places, you'll get two points, etc. Um, so again, those species are capuchin monkey, howler monkey, marmoset, and spider monkey. Did I vamp long enough? Um, tried to yeah. sync up with the audio cue. Uh, largest to smallest, yes. Largest to smallest, okay. yes, because l- largest is most important, as um, as just as we know. I think it goes without saying. Which which of these monkeys is a tall king? Is what you're saying? Uh, I'm raising my eyebrows uh, for the listeners who cannot see what my face is doing. Um, all right, we're we're looking at Seth first because he's first in the queue. Seth, you you ready to to give your your guesses? Did I give you enough time? Yeah, largest what? to smallest. I'm going yep, yep. marmoset, spider, howler capuchin all righty and so thank you for that i'm going to read those back just to make sure i got those uh exactly correct so largest to smallest i have the marmoset the spider monkey the howler monkey and the capuchin monkey did i did i get that right that is correct gotcha gotcha okay moving down the line here over to jason what is your guest order for this question I'm going to say that the tallest is the howler, then the spider, then the capuchin, then the marmoset. Alrighty. And so reading those back, I've got the howler monkey, the spider monkey, the capuchin monkey, and the marmoset. Did I, was that what you had? That is an accurate representation of my guesses. Thank you. Alrighty. Thank you. Moving over to Harry. Harry, where did you align with these monkeys? All right. Oh, where did I align with them? I think of myself. I'm as just trying to ask them capuchin. in fun, different ways. Okay. Don't read too uh, much into the wording. Tallest is Howler, then Capuchin, then Marmoset, then Spider. Alrighty, reading those back, I've got the Howler monkey, then the Capuchin monkey, then the Marmoset, then the Spider monkey. Is that what you had? Yep. Okay, perfect. He said Capuchin. And- like it was a monkey Pokemon, like Capuchin. <laughs> what does Capuchin <laughs> sound like? <laughs> Capuchin. Evolves into Capuchander. Yeah, yeah. Um, there we go. It's like yeah. a fire yeah. monkey type. Oh, that's Capuchin Lee. Actually. Yeah, there is, there is yeah. one of those. What's it? What's it? The, I'm sure the there's monkey? a fire monkey dude. For there's nine thousand Pokemon. Thank you, thank you, Seth. Yeah. Oh, that's a good name. That's pretty, a good name. Pretty good. Pretty good. Um, but is Aaron going to be pretty good with his guesses? Only time will tell. No. That time is now. Aaron, would you guess? Yeah. Uh, I'm going to guess that the Howler is the biggest, and then the Marmoset, and then the Capuchin, and then I'm Spider's got to be the smallest. Those are small little things, but I'm going to put the Spider at the smallest. I don't know Alrighty. either. I have no clue. Read it, reading those back <laughs> to make sure I get the order correct, I've got the Howler Monkey, followed by the Marmoset, uh, followed by uh, the Capuchin Monkey, and then the Spider Monkey. Is that is that what you had? Okay. Righteous. Very righteous. Um, how righteous? We'll find out as I finish up my tabulations here. Um, thank you very much, gentlemen. Just getting ahead of it. Thank you for participating in this, uh, this new iteration of Time Love. 
the correct order of these monkey species from longest to shortest is as follows. Coming in first, the biggest boy of the bunch, uh, we've got the howler monkey with uh, an average estimated length of uh, f- length, 58 and a half inches, uh, height and tail combined. Um, you know, I'm just going to keep saying longest because it's fun. But howler monkey is the longest of the boys, followed by the spider monkey, 45 and a half inches. God damn it. Uh, coming in third at 36 inches. At 36 inches, we have the capuchin monkey, and then a 19.75 okay. inches, the marmoset. Oh. Um, Jason's eyes lit up because he knows what's what's happening. Uh, going down the line here, just in the order of um, answers given. So Seth comes away from this game with uh, with a point. Jason comes away with with six. He nailed that that order perfectly. Um, the the monkey master himself, uh, Jason Daphnis. Harry came away with a a point from that last uh, that last question for a total of two points for the round, or excuse me, for the game. And then Aaron, two points in that final question, three for the game. Uh, Jason is is the winner. Jason is master of time. Uh, the time wizard, I think, is that Yu-Gi-Oh! I, uh, I don't need to really pop off. You all know what happened. You all were there. Uh, <laughs> thanks, Cody. Spider monkeys are the lankiest. I just Googled them, and I'm like, damn, that's like just a... It's not what you thought, huh? Fucking no, yeah. no. Should I'm they not. be hooping? They, they, should maybe be, they should be hooping, and they should be renamed. <laughs> is my opinion. Me, me. I, I wasn't even sure that a marmoset. Slender man looking. I thought a marmoset was a different, like a marsupial of some kind. So, blind guess there. Did you think? Um, did you think that because mar- marmoset sounds like marsupial? Yes, I think that's probably why. I think, yes. that's, I think, I think that, that was a, the case. Yep. Yeah. Thank you. Yep. <laughs> Explaining why. Are you saying a spider monkey is a monkey and not a spider? See what I did? I admitted to being an idiot, and then Harry's like. This is the way in which you were an idiot, right? <laughs> hey, man, you won. I just got to bring you down a peg or two, you know? That's true. This is all I have. Uh, uh, well, thank you, Cody, for another wonderful edition of Cody's Noties. Love ending our episodes like that. Thank you, Seth, for being here. Um, what what possible next uh, Bruno movie could we do that you would want to join for? Like, what's the next uh, <laughs> fucking Bruce Willis movie that, that the trial could possibly be playing that would be enticing for you? I mean, any of them. Uh, They're all yeah, right answer. Disney's the kid. Yeah. I think we should yes. do a special episode where we review the return of Bruno. <laughs> that would be what I would really love to do next. I, I thought about doing that with Crossfade. Maybe, maybe if and when we come back with that. Uh, but Seth, you're not off the hook yet. You got to let people know where they can find you, uh, except for in this very podcast feed. Uh, you guys can find me just about everywhere at SM Zarati. That's uh, Twitter. Instagram, uh, fucking Letterboxd, OnlyFans, uh, all of them on OnlyFans, Only Fansly, uh, Fansly, hide my IP, hide my IP, Patreon, um, Pirate yeah. Bay, uh, Leadex, Silk Torrance. Road, yeah, NordVPN. Uh, uh, find Seth uh, on your nearest, uh, your nearest PO box at SN Zarati. Find the rest of us uh, at Try Love Podcast. You can find all of our handles in that description because it's our podcast that we make. Uh, find the trial on at trial on cinema across all social media. I think that they're on, including letterboxd, Instagram, and Twitter, and then find them at trialon.org where you can do the things like buying and supporting them in other ways, uh, including donations and club memberships. Check it out at trialon.org and let us know what you'd like to see on the show at trial of podcast and at trial of podcast at gmail.com. You can find me at Nintendo. Don't tell me you're asking me anything. Uh, 
hey, duly noted. I will not. I've been Cody Narvison. You can keep up with my monkey business uh, on Twitter at Cody underscore BH. I'm Harry Mackin. You can find me on Twitter at Shiitake Harry. And I'm Aaron. Go give me a shout at Twitter at RB Please. I thought you really were on quick, break. What? Oh. Just, but yeah, but you can give me a shout. You can give someone what a that, shout if they're on break. This is, what, what does that, that shout sound like, yeah, Jason? what does that mean to give somebody a shout? Jason, could you yeah, Everybody knows know? what it sounds like. Well, I mean, me, like, me, me, I, me, I, me, I head to Twitter and I hit at and then I go A-A-R-B-Y-P-L-S. You do a voice and memo I, and what does it sound like? Yeah, I just leave a piece of audio on Twitter that sounds like... See, this is called letting your podcast run. It's not a good thing. Then I turn around and say goodbye. Oh, baby, walk straight on out the door. But you know, I'll be back on my bed and before you can count your chance. Send me